welcome to the seventh episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Friday the 5th of April and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week we start Chapter 3, the Revolutionary Strategy of the Centre, which deals with the strategy pursued by the German Social Democratic Party, or the SPD. The SPD was the most successful socialist revolutionary party in a major Western power to this date, right up till it met with disaster by backing the German state in World War I. We are joined by Lexi of Swampside Chats, Sophie of Trans Trans Revolution, and C. Derek Barn of Symptomatic Redness. If you'd like to help keep the episodes flowing, you can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, or about $1 an episode. This month, I have the new patrons Edward Paul, Reginald Catter, and Steve Robinson to thank. When we hit 50 patrons, I'll produce an extra patron-only podcast every month. The remaining few patrons who sign up from now till then will receive an exclusive handmade commie badge as a bonus. So if that's your bag, just click on that there Patreon button. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Today we're going to do Chapter 3, The Revolutionary Strategy of the Centre. Well, this seems to be mostly about the development of the German Social Democratic Party after Kalski and down to 1914. Has a weird digression about historical materialism and then goes through the um, historical Marxist center, which uh, also to remember, it didn't call itself that. That is McNeil's laboring. It's just like the other chapters, super dense. But I feel like when you start talking about this is getting into the area where more leftists kind of sort of know the history, but I'd be interested in like the different tendencies reading of this history outside of this book, because this is also the time period that gets the most mystified. And like there, there are the most ideological glosses on like, you know, 1891 to like 1914. Because this is where, the you know, these are just the fake Marxists, the betrayers. Don't worry about them. We'll move on to the real Marxists in a little bit. But we just have to establish all these fakers. It's usually how this comes out in, like, I don't know, party histories or something like that. I kind of disagree with you that everybody knows this history. I think that, you know, the history nerds know it. But the general people who have, you know, a liking just of socialism and communism or say whatever, they don't know this stuff. I certainly didn't know it until I started maybe reading this book. There's there's a lot of like activists that would know of this history. In, I would say Trot, Maoist, anybody who comes from a sectarian tradition, their their hagiography usually starts here. Tom is saying people, not yeah, leftists no, no, or activists. The great majority of people don't know it. And also, I mean, to be fair to Tom's other point and kind of mine, sort of, is that also the hagiography is not true. So like, you know, so the people, a lot of people who think they know this probably don't as much as they think they do. I mean, the the number of times that people have told me that Kalski voted for the war, for example, just illustrates me that they don't actually yeah. know this history. And I've seen that printed in academic books because they trusted party histories. Well, I read a paper that said uh, Bernstein voted for the war, which I, I think is also false. This stuff is so mystified. 
And it's genuinely hard to wrap one's mind around what really happened in a certain way. And McNair's framework for it has clarified my thinking on it significantly. You don't need to be a buff to get this, to get this simple idea behind a strategy. We should be doing using this to inform people's opinions on, you know, the DSA, the Labour Party, Syriza, 15M, you know, all of these things. We're going to see from this, people who aren't aware of all this mad history, aren't aware of, say, the ins and outs of all this stuff, aren't even like, I think the vast majority of people aren't sectarian. They're just kind of people that are isolated leftists. So it's for those people that it's nearly most important for, because you're not really going to reach sectarian people. People are going to have their own silly ideas that they'll only ever break with when they're ready to break. Right. Like I, I have uh, some friends locally who kind of like recently, or a friend in particular who recently broke with anarchism and it's kind of like a, a baby Marxist now. And this is like the book I would give her as like an intro to like socialist history because, like, although it's dense, as Derek said earlier, it talks about the most important points and what to extrapolate from that history rather than just kind of being academic about it. Not that there's anything wrong necessarily with learning history, but this builds, like, looks at history and tries to build a strategy from that. You know what I mean? And I think for, like, new organizers, that's key, especially for those who aren't, you know, right. in a sect yet, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a much easier intro than the other book I would give people as an introduction, which is Hal Draper's five volume over, you know, <laughs> over like 2000 page history of Marx, uh, Marx and the revolutionary political theory or whatever that, that, that five, that five series book is called that I read. Um, Cause that's the other good one, but this is way, right. way, way more approachable. That's a uh, Karl Marx's yeah. theory of revolution. One thing I would say as well is that while it is dense, it's not very difficult. It, it's it's chock-a-block with interesting stuff and good, clear writing, explaining strate- the strategical decisions that were made by people. But it's not difficult to understand. It actually no. reads quite well. That's the amazing strength of it. The only part of it that is minorly distracting is the, the amount of different groups he kind of references offhand. We made a lot of comments about the sect Olympics going on in here and how... <laughs> Maybe that's like the least interesting part and the most remote part. If you read this, virtually every single fucking organized thing you've ever seen in your entire life is a right socialist formation. Yep. And not only in your entire life, but in most of socialist history. Like, yeah. And Except for the left socialist formations, which are even crazier. I said organized, right? Like... So the center tendency of the Social Democratic Party and the Second International was was also its ideological leadership. Despite the eventually disastrous errors and betrayals, this tendency had a massive historical achievement to its credit. It, as a side note, you know we know that it was the lar- it was the largest political party in Germany for a while. Led the building of a mass workers movement, socialist parties of late 19th, 20th century Europe, and the creations of the Second International. Leftist advocates of the modernized strike, in contrast to either group of school schools like. Modern far leftists such as the Lonest um, are militant but ephemeral movements such as the industrial workers of the world. I mean, that's kind of a sick burn, but... Okay, but we're going to be reading these. I want us to leave out all of these obscure right. sects that he mentions, like the De, Le- De-, De- Leonists. 
I, I have yeah. no idea who they are. I forget. I don't even want to talk about them. No, uh, we'll skip that. But I think you, I, I don't think you can say the IWW is obscure. I think a lot of people right. even find don't even know who the second international is. This is like right. the the second try attempt at unifying the European left in the early ninth early twentieth century. And, and honestly, uh, it got like, the second international got larger than the European left. Even like there were people in Asia um, and Latin America involved. I mean, not in huge amounts, but they did exist. So what he's trying, what he's saying here is that the center tendency, the one that we're going to describe in this chapter. That was the one that was responsible for the largest, pretty much you would say, revolutionary party. People may, might say German Social Democratic Party was or wasn't. It was definitely very militant. It was not a right party because it did it followed the center tendency. It ended up being one, but it wasn't at this stage. He doesn't do this now, but when he starts talking about the way that unity with the right forces you into a corner. Maybe we might say there's a de facto coalitionism that even the SPDA is guilty of, which is uh, one of the harder things to grapple with. And that's what the quote historic center is really known for. Yeah. And when you look at Lenin's texts, the people that are thinking about the center quote unquote the most, it's just a fucking rag doll. You know, like it's it's merely a capitulationist smokescreen. That's there's nothing else there. But what's interesting about this, and this is you know kind of spoiler warning, I guess, but <gasps> is that like those critiques of the center tendency are actually correct in a sense, and yeah. that's kind of what the end of this chapter gets at. But it's not only that these critiques of the center tendency are correct. This this issue with the center tendency, their problems come from Marx and Engels themselves. A lot of them do. It's pretty cool that he lays out the center and you think he's just going to advocate for it, but then, then he kind of rags on it. And then after ragging on it, he still kind of advocates for it. That's where the Neo and Neo count comes in, I suppose. Yeah. Let, let, let's keep going. Okay, so what we're saying is that he makes out this tendency that the center was the one that ran the Social Democratic Party. And what we're saying in reality was a little bit more smoky than that, that they were kind of in coalition with their own right their own social democratic kind of element and they try to hold the party together and try and keep its revolutionary bent and we get onto it later kind of talk about whether the center really was in charge or whether it was the right but let's just talk about how McNair or Kowski would think of the center I think is probably the best way to do of it let's read this paragraph here who wants to have a go at this one Lexi do you want to give right. this one a go all right the center tendency did not, of course, identify itself as such. It self-identified as the continuers and defenders of, quote, orthodox Marxism against, quote, anarchists, to its left, but not in the center's view, and, quote, revisionists, to its right. In this sense, it was primarily defined by negative judgments on the coalition strategy of the right and the mass strike strategy of the left. Both Kautsky's The Social Revolution and his The Road to Power are extremely cautious in making positive categorical claims predictive claims about strategy. There are nonetheless some core principled understandings about strategy which emerge from the arguments. So one of the things that I both like about this and it makes this maddeningly to talk about is the terms like revisionist have been co-opted and redefined. So for example, revisionist after 1951 means something completely different than it did in, in 1909. 
because a group of Stalinists used it to criticize the former Soviet state in a way that had to do with geopolitics and not to do with capitalist development theory. But it was a way of smearing them as really being secret Bernsteinist. But the latter meaning is now what everybody means when they use the term. And when they see this stuff mentioned in these early mm-hmm. SPD texts, they often, frankly, read the post-1950s definition onto it, which right. is wrong. But this is this is a constant problem when we talk about this with sectarians or with normal people because so because some of this baggage and language actually doesn't just affect sectarianism. It was kind of like the talk of official communism and the tensions within it for you know forty years. So mm-hmm. anyone who's older than say forty actually has heard these terms used in a completely different way. Define revisionism just to make it clear then. Like revisionism is just like a revision to the basic ideas of like uh, Marx and Engels. Sort of like last it's- week we did the coalitionist right and the Bernsteinist kind of package of critiques of Marx and Engels dialectics, of their predictions for the trajectory of capitalism and for their revolutionary politics. So that there, there was a distinct package of quote revision the simplified version is that the Bernsteinists were evolutionists, not revolutionists, and they were revisionists right. for revising revolution as a necessity, right? There's more complications yeah. than that, but that's like the, okay. the web version. So when he says revisionists, there are people who are trying to, in this sense, where they were revising Marx as to be, you know, some kind of social democrat. And when Stalinists mean it, they mean it's somebody who has done what exactly? Yeah, somebody who sided with Khrushchev's criticism of Stalin. I've been reading this today and I've kind of underlined like for the next like like three or four pages, nearly the whole goddamn plot. <laughs> as it ever same as it ever was. Let me have a read of this little paragraph here. Okay, so organization. For the center tendency, the strength of the proletariat and its revolutionary capacity flows not from the employed workers' power to withdraw their labor, but from the power of the proletariat as a class to organize. It is organization that makes a difference between a spontaneous expression of rage and rebellion like a riot and a strike as a definite action for definite and potentially winnable goals. I think that's a very interesting, simple point he's making. If we compare this to, like, say, anarchists or... Say, Communization theorists. So, so they, they kind of talk more about the, it's like the strike, what done it. But really, it's, it's about the ability to organize that's mm-hmm. where the center comes from. The power of it is through the ability for people to get together and work and, and plan and come up with their organizations. Well, doesn't McNair in an earlier chapter also talk about how part of the strategy of Marx and Engels was to not just organize employed labor, but like organize like class by districts, including unemployed? When you're focused solely on productive labor um, and the ability to strike, you're missing out on a whole bunch of people who are arguably worse off and probably more sympathetic to a revolutionary program. And that's sort of a hole in the way that Marxism has tended to address the problems of the proletariat by doing trade union politics. But it also makes sense. In a way, you want to build centers of proletarian power. And, you know, the form that was historically available that Marx looked to, I mean, yeah, it was, for the most part, organized labor and only in its most radical elements did it get to you know organizing the unemployed right and the other thing is marx has an ambivalence about the unemployed because marx 
And I'm not even going to say wrongly, because frankly, if you've ever seen a revolutionary group who, who actually incorporates criminal elements into their group, they almost always invite the state to squash them really fast. But there is this fear of the lumpen, which Mark seems to have meant criminal, but sometimes meant perpetually unemployed, but he wasn't clear on that. It's not really defined. It does improve as he gets older and as he gets more serious about political economy, but... I don't know if he ever, you know, says, mea culpa, I was so wrong about the lumpen man. The thing is, I don't know, maybe this is a hot take. He's not totally wrong about the lumpen. Like, you don't want lots of, I don't know, like, mafiosos in your revolutionary group. (laughs) Just the hit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I would love to see is, like, what the SPD did with, like, education collectives and, and programs like that. You know, like mutual aid programs to help lump in, you know, not only in like a welfare sense, but also to help them get back on their feet, you know, and if socialists right. can provide that. This debate. is a deep debate and it, and it runs through all of Marxism and it, McNair's representing a lot of the best of Marxism. It's still a problem with him, but that doesn't mean that he has nothing to say about it. This stuff about strikes and organization, that contrast with the spontaneous outburst of a riot is still something that you can use as an analytic for non-labor organizing activity. I was living in London here when the London riots happened, I think in, what, like 2011, 2012. They were pretty full on, like the whole city was being shut down for, like where I'm living here in Woolwich, like probably 25% of the shops had got smashed up. Quite a number of them got burnt down. You know, there was a lot of damage done. And if you looked at how the BBC were able to talk about the people who are rioting, like literally the word that they had they were using was like rats and vermin, you know, stuff like that. Now, if they were done with a political an obviously organized political motive, they couldn't use those words about it, even Mm. if the outcome was the same. It just would be a different thing. It just shows that like this idea of organization is to me very important. Anyway. Let me read the next paragraph. Moreover, as soon as we move beyond craft unionism, which relies on skills monopolies to coerce the employer, the difference between victory and defeat in a strike is the ability of the solidarity of the class as a whole to sustain the strikers in the face of the economic and political pressure the employers can exert. Finally, it's the need and potential ability of the proletariat as a class to organize democratically when we enter into a mass strike wave or revolutionary crisis that represents the potential alternative authority to the authority of the capitalist class. There's so, a whole lot to pack, to unpack here. Yeah, have a go. Well, one, I mean, the, the moving beyond craft unionism, which is just, which just relies on skills monopolies to coerce employers into better conditions. One of the things I get criticized for on the left for saying a lot is that a lot of modern unions are effectively craft unions and that the most successful strikes right now in the United States are craft union strikes. Um, if you look at the recent data on the increasing strikes, when there's been a massive uptick, but the great majority of them have been teachers and nurses. Those are craft unions. Yeah. My hyper-conservative brother supports craft unionism. He thinks that, you know, people who have a special skill, which they need to like, you know, not be exploited more for have a right to unions regular workers don't that distinction has been lost in all of our recent discussions about unions when i pointed out people get mad viscerally mad and so you can't really even talk about some of these larger issues because you have to talk about class strikes 
you know, in, in class organization. I mean, Kowski was famous in the road of power saying, and, you know, I remember realizing this a few years ago, that if you could actually successfully pull up a mass strike and the capitalists not starve you out, you can also pull off a military revolution. So why not just go ahead? Because normally the reason why general strikes don't work is capitalists have more resources than proletarian and the proletarian will eventually starve themselves unless they have the ability to really democratically organize in a way that we can actually take over and hold the means of production, not just stop it. You know, if they literally can produce food themselves. That's why the peasant yeah. coalitions were really important, but those don't work as well in fully developed capitalist countries because peasants just don't exist in the same way. It's funny this about the, the unions. Like I've been a member of two unions in my life. When I used to work for Ericsson's in Ireland, they made you join the union. They had one union and it was called the Marine Marine Port General Workers uh, Union. And, and, and also in the bank, I worked in a bank and it was Irish Bank Officials Association. It wasn't technically a union, but it pretty much was, I think. But how it operated in Ireland was that even to get a job in management, do you know what you had to do? Be a member Be of the leader union? in the oh, union. Oh my God. Become a leader in the union. Oh, that is such collaborationist horseshit. All right. <laughs> yeah. But that, that, was, that was literally. So if you wanted to get a good job in management, they encouraged you to become like a union rep. That is and so that backwards. Shows... Yeah. Yeah, it's very bad. But it's really smart, but, though. Think about it. it they, oh, they, yeah. they get all the people in charge of the union as the most kind of class traitorists. It's a fantastic right. idea. Well, and, I mean, they you do know, so in America, but we pay union leaders out of stock dividends. I swear to God. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of leads to like uh, the discourse around unions in the United States too, because like the hot takes on unions are either they're all bourgeois bullshit and you shouldn't bother with them, or it's overly romanticized like rah 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 unions are great let's not talk about how it's basically craft unionism and people's emotions kind of get in a way of like in an, a true and honest analysis about what it means like it's, it's a, certainly a good thing that there's more strikes going on but yeah. like we need to be honest about what that is you know yeah and particularly the thing that's the thing that gets me the most are Marxists that kind of give up on struggles around labor right because of the kind of trends in like non-craft unionism and then go, but no, but it's a good thing. It's it, that's good because um, we'll find another way. And the, yeah, the, I used to say know, that too. And then I realized me too. And in, in like six years, I have not even foreseeably kind of sort of even a little bit come up with another way. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I want to be open to what, you know, whatever history throws at us, but it's hard to imagine something that isn't about labor in some essential capacity creating the kind of organizational glue to create an alternative set of institutions that you can transfer power to right move on okay it's paragraph by paragraph derek you read the next one <laughs> proletarian organization need not only be employed in the form of strike action solidarity and the power to organize can also create cooperatives of various sorts workers' educational institutions, workers' papers, workers' political parties. And it can turn out the vote for workers' candidates in public elections. Strong votes for a workers' party will increase the self-confidence and sense of solidarity of a working class as a class and its ability to organize and act, not just electorally, but in other arenas of struggle, such as strikes, for example. I think this is pretty straightforward and yeah, so kind of... 
kind of obvious. You know, if we're actually one of the things we're going to have is a political party. You know, it'll be a synergistic relationship between the class organizing itself and the party doing well. And it'll be a feedback mechanism on each other. It's all very straightforward stuff. Do you think you would have, at this point, if you were writing, rewriting this or editing this for an American audience, would you have to bring up the SPA? The modern SPA? No, like the classic heyday, early 20th century SPA. The so- that's the Socialist Party of America, which is, oh God, I brought up and now Eugene Debs. Eugene Debs yeah. ran, as, ran for president uh, in the United States. And, I, and I'm not like super familiar with um, their politics, but there's it was been a lot, lot of the criticism. Place. You had uh, something called sewer socialism, where it was kind of like a uh, racist and workerist, but they were all about building like you know new sewer lines and you know public work projects and stuff like that. He also had with, communists uh, in there. I mean, like yeah. Debs was pretty communisty himself. I mean, he had arguments with some of the things that Lenin did, like executing the czar's family. He didn't think it was necessary and wrote a letter about it. But in general, he's pretty supportive of the Bolsheviks from like 1917 to 1921. No, Go but ahead. the SPA was hyper coalitionist. That was the issue. Like it took mm. everybody in until the CPUSA broke it up. But it, it actually it still exists in some way because it is actually <laughs> the uh, the root guru to use Buddhist terms, of uh, <laughs> both the um, SPUSA and the DSA. Like, they're both, mm. they both actually claim the mantle to be the successor of the SPA. The, the, the reason to bring up the SPA at all, though, is not as, like, an example of, like, a center tendency, but more of, like, an example of, like, what winning candidates as a workers' party would mean in the United States. And I think that was, for all their flaws, that was, like, their biggest impact was that they actually could win seats in it, like made socialism seem plausible, you know? But the modern SPA is a, a fucking joke. To, it's to the right of the DSA now, from what I've seen. It's pretty gross. But but not to the right of the Communist Party USA. Which is also absolutely disgusting. But w- yeah, let's maybe uh, move but, on. Yeah, there's no need to get into yeah. that much more. But Sophie, yeah. you want to read this one? Okay. The core of the political strategy of the center tendency was to build up the workers' organized movement and especially the workers' political party as its central institution. In their view, as the organized movement of the working class grew stronger, so would the self-confidence of the class and its ability to take political decisions and oppose them on the bourgeoisie and the state, both in the struggle for reforms and in mass strike waves or revolutionary crisis, a powerful mass party of the working class which had at its core aims the perspective of the working class taking power, overcoming the regime of private property would be the essential instrument of the working class asserting an alternative form of authority. What I like about this idea about the party, if we think, you know, I know that we are, you know, commies or Marxists or socialists, whatever we want to call ourselves. But the idea, like if you look at a, at a capitalist system and you look at how businesses are organized, you know, businesses have their board of directors, have a plan of a managerial system going through for controlling that. But the business doesn't have a direct line to tell parliament and the country what to do. But they do have mechanisms whereby their opinions do re- get reflected into the party that controls a state. We should be thinking as leftists is that we should have organizations, left organizations that have specific purposes. Now, we don't, I'm not saying we should mirror whatever bourgeois or capitalist society has, but that we should be thinking and talk, thinking about the design of our separate institutions with respect to purpose 
and how they can interact and interlock. So what I, I like here is especially this like long last sentence, both in the struggle for reforms and in mass strike waves or revolutionary crises, a powerful mass party would still be like super important for actually making the bridge to communism. Maybe what we could say is that like, even for the chosen tactics of the left and the right, the import of a mass party is obvious. What it made me think of too is the confusion around the term social democracy, right? Like the meme of uh, social democracy killed Rosa Luxemburg, right? But the truth of the matter is that Rosa was a social democrat. But what social democracy meant back then is different than what we mean now. It's another, it's like revisionism, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Originally, a social democratic party was just the party of the working class, the proletarian party, which advanced the class interests of the proletariat in parliament, which is basically exactly what Tom was talking about. And I think before we can have a revolution, having a voice and having somebody advocate for the working class is, is important. Because they have so much power and so much influence, and, and we're not to expect like you know huge uh, concessions at all, really. But like there is an advocate for us, and then there's also that confidence in that we can govern. The working class can govern. You know, we don't have to rely on the bourgeoisie to keep order in this society. Also, it gives a place for actual working class interests to be more purely manifested, as opposed to like mm-hmm. in our current coalitionary world where we have to pick between one faction of bourgeois reactionaryism and another faction of bourgeois sort of kind of quasi progressivism kind of sort of not really the the fact that the working class doesn't vote in the united states like makes perfect sense when you think about it that way yeah they're all i mean and like this is not to say that all the all the working class in america is marx woke a lot of them are paranoid conspiracy theorists but there's a reason why they don't vote like and yeah. actually it's probably the same reason why a lot of them turn to paranoid conspiracy theories there's no outlet for their interests they have tangential right. outlets for their interests but those are constantly shifting they're shifting and they're being fed from reactionary sources yeah uh there is a quip in marx and engels writings where i, I think is it marx or maybe Engels that objects to the term social democracy because, well, of course it is scientifically incorrect because once we overcome democracy, you know, and that they vastly prefer the term communist. I think ultimately Marxism is inherently socially democratic in a specific sense that McNair is laying out. Lexi, do you want to take this next paragraph? Absolutely. And uh, this ties very much into what you're saying, Sophie. It is important to be clear that the movement that the center tendency sought to build was not the gutted form of the modern social democracy slash laborism, which is dependent on the support of the state and the capitalist media for its mass character. The idea was of a party which stood explicitly for the power of the working class and socialism. It was one which was built up on the basis of its own resources its own organization with local and national press, as well as its own welfare and educational institutions. Yeah, this this is what made social democracy in the Marxist vein different than the, you know, right socialist, you know, Lasallian strategy that we discussed last week, where you want the state to get involved and provide all this stuff. What Marx and Engels are advocating is an alternate power base to the market and to the state. In the modern case, in most of the modern democracies like Europe or, or Britain, there is no alternative to the to the right socialist alternative. You know, it doesn't the, exist yet, so it's hard to the, map the, onto today's world. There is a weird 
legacy of this sort of thinking with regards to the nonprofit sector because of all of the awful bureaucratic tendencies that you ended up getting in the trade union movement when abstracted from workers' interests, like even more so. There is that third term in sort of political and economic life, the state, you know, private capitalist interests, and then this other thing that's supposed to represent interests beyond profit. So it's supposed to represent social interests. And so this becomes much more clear when in a place like, I don't know, the Bay Area in California, where this is a a significant amount of, of the economic activity or even political activities through this supposedly non-state, non-profit actor. Right. But the non-profit actors are still dependent on the bourgeois. That, that's ultimately... Right. I mean, uh, it, to be fair, you know, the ultra-left critique of unionism is, is that too, that it's still mm-hmm. ultimately dependent on the bourgeois. And in some, in, in some real sense, without these other social elements, they're right. To, to speak to this a little bit, Marx explicitly says we shouldn't like oppose welfare reforms done by the state. When he critiques LaSalle, he just he's critiquing that as as the program to get us out of capitalism. But we know from his argument with the French Marxists who basically were arguing, you know, that we should seize the state, then try all these reforms, knowing that these reforms won't work, so that it'll radicalize the proletariat and they'll revolt. Marx says no. I'm not going to lie. I've heard many Trotskyists actually make that argument for their transitional mm-hmm. program, which even I think even Trotsky would be horrified by. <laughs> so if you think about it this way, you push for reform so you have the social space to create to create the social institutions that then could actually usurp the function of those state reforms. So by having the space of like and the extra capital from say something like a medical, you know, like socialized medicine, you could use that capital to reinvest into mutual aid groups, which would could then usurp the function of socialized medicine. This is a much longer strategy than I think most most Marxists realize. This is in a period where the state wasn't doing a lot of these things already. I guess over the course of Marx and Engels' lives, there was the more of the development of the kind of Bismarck welfare state. You know the. Ex- kind of explicitly like conservative development of state aid and that sort of thing. And to a certain degree, a conservative view on trade unionism and how it could be integrated into the nation. It's interesting you talk about like charities being, the, you know, the system. But if you go, my missus works for a charity, it will remain nameless. But if you work in a charity, you'd be surprised by how many right-wing people work in the charity sector. It's probably 50 50. I think it splits like society. It doesn't split along like whether you're left or right too much, maybe dependent on the charity. But a large portion of the people who do serious charity work in these organizations are those that have, have the time. There's the people who have a, inherited a house or people that have, you know, a very rich partner, et cetera, et cetera, that actually end up running organizations in charities. Not unlike the type of people who tend to be big in leftist political life. Absolutely. People have got the time to read all this goddamn stuff and get daddy to set up a publishing house for them. Okay, let's move on to this. The self-emancipation of the majority. The second central feature of the strategic understandings of the center tendency 
was that the socialist revolution is necessarily the act of the majority. This is fairly elementary and fundamental Marxism. It formed the basis of Marx and Engels' opposition to various forms of socialist putschism and support for enlightened despots. The object of the socialist revolution is precisely the self-emancipation of the working class majority. And through this, the emancipation of all human beings without distinction of sex or race. The idea that this can be accomplished through the action of an enlightened minority is a self-contradiction. I think that's pretty hard hitting. Yeah, I mean, it seems to throw capital M, capital L, Marxism, Leninism under the bus as not being a Marxist concept. Well, not, not only capital M, capital L, Marxism, Leninism, but Lenin's conception of a party as vanguard. Even, yes. even to, to an extent, like you could say that about Kautsky, but Kautsky at least wanted a mass party. Perhaps the, you know, the organized people within that, like their representatives, maybe there's a real claim to being a mass vanguard in, in this self-emancipatory way. I mean, you start to stretch it at that point. But I think it's not as clearly broken off as it is once you get to Lenin. Yeah, because you can make an argument that the vanguard is at least represented as a form of like a democratic republican kind of institution, which, you know, as you said, is, is still a little bit of a stretch. And, and this ultimately is the, I love how elegant this is. That self-emancipation of the majority is the plank from which the, to criticize the right and the left, more or less. Well, and it, and it solves the kind of identity debates that he was talking about, like the earlier chapters too. As a trans woman, I think class is still the central contradiction or problem in society. And I think, you know, the reason why there's a class basis for why trans people get fucked over. And I think what happens when you abandon class in favor of identity struggles is that you lose that emancipatory right. element. You're too busy cooperating with the bourgeoisie of your identity movement to have any kind of self-emancipation. You know, like, I do think that the proletarian class is the universal class that can, you know, represent all of our interests, because yeah. most of us belong to that, including especially trans people. The most insidious forms of that stuff take a necessarily anti-universalist approach, mm -hmm. because we are, you know, a minority. Therefore, any kind of majoritarian ism in general is necessarily going to harm us and it's it's a bit of a tragic framework because without some form of you know majoritarianism for the proletariat you know most trans women won't be free they'll be like 10 you know or you know proportionately speaking there'll be some but most of them won't be most right. of us will not be and you could say the same for women you could especially say this for people of color you know, and I think it becomes more pronounced when dealing with race and nation, whereas with gender, you know, half the bourgeoisie are women. Even more insidious than that is like people who claim to be Marxists, right? Who want to like throw out this kind of universal like right. self emancipation. You know, that is a, the most insidious form of revisionism from where I stand because they want to claim to represent my interests. No, but it's it's worth noting because it's a fundamental difference between a an emancipatory democratic politics and a sort of like minoritarian politics of representation or mm -hmm. revenge. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the, those people often are very, also very critical of like Leninism and vanguardism in that same way, but yet they replicate that through yeah. their identity struggle. I think McNair is also acutely aware of this coming out of the gay uh-huh. liberation movement. You could really see this with like, you know, that that movement, the gay movement and how um, they got so absorbed in the identity aspect of it and, and dropped any kind of uh, socialist content it may have had that now you have, you know, cops, you know, in pride. That really illustrates what happens when you drop any kind of like proletarian, majoritarian, like element, universal element from struggle is that you get a uh, just class collaboration and, but also it leaves behind the most vulnerable people. And I think with trans struggles specifically, oh. um, what we're going to see is that, you know, white petite bourgeois trans people are going to end up fine and well, you know, relatively well represented and black and brown trans women are going to still get murdered at like incredibly high rates, you know? Yeah. And also just proletarian trans women in general will be, subject to all the same abuses while right you know well-off trans women are living in the future On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Mm-hmm.